like the rest of you to uh, open your Bibles with me to uh, James chapter 2 and verse 24. Book of James, toward the back. Comes just after Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 24. If you have your study guide, there's a couple of verses in the side column I just want to call attention to. One is 1 Timothy 1.8. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Galatians 3.24, the next paragraph, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And then we have this curious passage in James 2 verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Martin Luther was so zealous to recover the gospel of justification by faith that uh, when he kind of began his debate with the Roman Catholic Church of his day, and they began to throw at him these scriptures like from James... Martin Luther began to doubt the canonicity of the book of James. In fact, he said it's a right strawy epistle, meaning like it was like straw, something for the fire, and uh, somebody snuck it into the New Testament without looking very closely. (laughs) I don't think Martin Luther was right. It has a place in the New Testament, but it points out that the struggle between understanding the purity of the gospel of justification by faith, and the question, but what about good works? What about our life? What about the way we live? Doesn't that make any difference? And if you were here last week, uh, you know that I brought a message dealing with the fact that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Let me just back up and, and go to the very basics. What is justified? What does it mean to be justified? Some people say today you shouldn't use those theological terms that confuses people. Well, I don't know what else to use, but I can make it simple for you. Justified means to be made righteous in the sight of God. It means to be held guiltless without guilt. All of our sins atoned and covered or as the children learn somewhere along the way, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified means to stand before God pure and holy with nothing charged to our account in terms of sin. And the gospel message is that we have been justified by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. There's nothing we can do to add to the finished work of Christ. There are no good works we can supplement His death on the cross with. He has done it all. And there's nothing more for us to do. And that causes some people great concern. Because they feel like if if, uh, that's true, then we don't have to worry about how we live or... If that's true, then what's the point of good works or how do good works fit in and all of those kinds of things. And so uh, some uh, churches, particularly uh, the one that I'm trying to bring correction uh, regarding the Catholic Church, teaches that you are regenerated by faith and initially justified by faith, but then you must, throughout the rest of your life, add good works to that in order to uh, continue to merit the justification that is ours in Jesus Christ. And the feeling is that if we don't add that clause, well, people will just do whatever they want to do, and we can't just be saved by faith alone. There has to be some works with it. 
Now, this morning I want to remind us of two areas that we were at in last week and just kind of go over those briefly. First of all, Paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And when we talk about justification, we talk about works, we automatically have to talk about the law. What, what is the law? The law, you could say, is the Ten Commandments. Okay, so we have the Ten Commandments to deal with. But in addition, the whole Bible is full of do's and don'ts, is it not? I mean, you, can't, you can hardly read a page of Scripture that you don't find at least one sentence that says do this, or at least one sentence that says don't do that. The Bible is filled from cover to cover with things that we ought to do and things that we ought not to do. And Paul says, all of these things are law. All of these things are rules. All of these things are kind of expressions of holiness of character. And Paul says that the law is good if we use it lawfully. In other words, if we use it correctly. So I want to ask the question this morning and underscore it again. What is the correct use of all of those passages in Scripture that say do this or don't do that? The correct use, the right understanding, is that all of these passages reveal the character of God. Jesus said, for example, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, he said, my life is going to be a perfect fulfillment of all of the requirements of the law. He went so far as to say, when he was talking with his disciples in John chapter 14, in that last discussion he had with them, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Look at my life and you will see God. Everything I have done in fulfillment of all the points of the law is a perfect reflection of my character in God and God's character in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so every time we encounter one of those places in Scripture where it says, do this, do you know why it says that? Because that's how God acts. That's what He's like. That's what He does. He does that thing. Or if it says, don't do this, the reason it says that is because God doesn't do that thing, whatever it may be. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. What is this about? This is law, isn't it? Here's the commandment. Don't let this happen. Do let this happen. When you look at that commandment and you think about it, here's what's being said. Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Why? Because God never speaks trivially. God does not let unwholesome words come out of His mouth. Uh, You're never going to hear uh, God saying something to you that's not wholesome or healthy. He doesn't tell dirty jokes. You know, uh, there are certain things that God doesn't do. And, I, and I'm not just picking on dirty jokes, because there's a whole lot worse things you, you can say that, than sexual innuendo. You can, you can get into some things that are hurtful to people. And God doesn't do that. God does not damage people with His mouth. He doesn't speak unwholesome things. So when the Scripture says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, that's because God doesn't. That's His character. But then it says, but only such a word as is good for the need of the moment that it may give edification and help and grace to those who hear it. Well, what does God do? He always speaks into our lives those things that encourage us, that help us, that correct us, that train us, that teach us. God is always about saying positive things to us. And when I say positive, I'm not talking about nice, nice, good, good. I'm talking about things that are beneficial, they are constructive God speaks constructively into our lives. He corrects us. He challenges us. He builds us up. He encourages us. He comforts us. God does a lot of things with His communication that is good and wholesome. And so the Scripture says that's how you ought to be. Why? Because that's the way God is. In other words, all the law of the Bible reveals the character of God. The second purpose of the law in revealing the character of God is to show us where we stand in relationship to that character, good or bad. 
as the, as the Scripture unfolds the character of God, okay, it's intended to expose our lives and show us how like or unlike God we are. That's the purpose whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've never been born again, the purpose of the law is to expose your inconsistency with the character of God and to show you how far you have fallen and how much you need a Savior. Oh my goodness, this is what God is like and I'm not like that. Well, God can't have anyone in His presence who does not have His character. Well, that excludes me. What will I do? Well, you need a Savior. You need someone to forgive your sin. How much you are unlike God. You need someone to forgive you and someone to transform you by His power so that you can come into the presence of God. The purpose of the law is to expose sin. It, yes, we do. And, and the purpose of the law in you as a believer is to show you where you fail to measure up or where you conform to the character of God. The Holy Spirit uses it in our lives to point out, oh, this is an area of my life that's not very much like the Lord. <laughs> but friends, here's, here's the problem that a lot of people get into. In fact, I'll rephrase that. Here's the problem that most Christians get into. They read the law. I'm going to go back to Ephesians 4, where I was for a moment. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. And they say, oh Lord, I say inappropriate things all the time. I hurt people. I wound them. I, I, I gossip. I, there's all kind of stuff that comes out of my mouth. I'm going to try harder to be more like you. You are doomed to fail. You are destined to failure because you are not like Him in yourself. You don't have that capacity. The purpose of the law is not to make you holy. It doesn't show you that problem so you can try harder. The Scripture plainly teaches that there is no law given that can make us holy. If it could, Jesus would not have needed to come. There is no law that can make you holy. So what's the point? Well, you read it and you say, Lord, unwholesome words come out of my mouth all the time. And He says, but they never come out of mine. And I've given you my Spirit. So why don't you give Him your tongue? Then He can do what He does best and you can get out of the way. And He will speak wholesome words through you as you trust Him to do that. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to bring within us the very life and character of Jesus Christ and to live that life out through us. So friends, when you read in the Scriptures, do this, don't do that, and you say, oh, I do things I'm not supposed to do. Don't try harder. Come to God and surrender. And when you find the Scriptures telling you things you ought to do, don't try harder to do them. Come to God and surrender. Lord, I agree with you. Lord, I affirm that, that Your Word is true and I am inconsistent. But I yield my life to You. I allow You to take place in my life. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to reproduce the life of Christ in us. It's His presence in us that produces purity of thought and actions. We need to get a hold of this. Now, I'm not going to go over all the details of all the verses, but that's the reason that I've given you this addendum. All of Roman numeral 1 is on page 1. And all of Roman numeral 2 is on page 2. And it's all Scriptures that support the things that I have just given you as I've talked about this. The law is good if we use it lawfully. And the Holy Spirit is given to us to reproduce in us the life of God in Jesus Christ and to seal us as the down payment, the deposit that God has put in our life toward 
the day of ultimate and total and complete salvation. So then, how do we deal with the question of good works? I want to spend the rest of my time this morning talking about the problem of antinomianism. Now, I know that's another big word. In fact, it's worse than justification. (laughs) But it's very, very simple. Nomos in the Greek language means law, and anti means against. So antinomians are what? Against the law. In other words, they have no use for the law. Antinomians are people that say something like this. I can get saved and trust Jesus and have eternal security, and it doesn't matter how I live. In fact, I can have heaven and the world too. I can live however I please as long as I've trusted Jesus. That's kind of antinomianism. And it is not a new problem. Because the New Testament writers were dealing with it back in the days of the New Testament. We have whole books of the Bible that were written to deal with the problem of antinomianism. People who thought because they had prayed a prayer could live their lives any way they wanted to live them and go to heaven. Now I want to ask a question. We have said very plainly, last week and part of this week, we have said very plain and very clearly, and I've recently preached on the book of Romans. Is it true that a person is justified by faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing? Is that true? Is it true that there is nothing you can do to add to the finished work of Christ? That's true. Is there anything you can do? Ah, this is a careful one, but think through it. Is there anything that you can do as a born-again child of God that will make God stop loving you, rip His Spirit out of your life, and send you to hell? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I know and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him against that day. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me and no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. Friends, I'm here this morning to declare to you that there is nothing you or I can do as a child of God that will suddenly one day God will be sitting on His throne and say, Oh my goodness, Ryan, how could you do that? I can't stand you anymore. Get out of my sight. You're gone for good. I'm not having any more to do with you. God is never going to be caught off guard. He's never going to be taken by surprise. And there's nothing that you can do that will make Him abandon you. He has put His Holy Spirit in you and sealed you. Sealed you. For the day of eternity, He has deposited in your life His Spirit and sealed you for salvation. So then, if that's true, if that's true, is it possible to live any way you want and sin as much as you want and go to heaven? It's not a trick question. Logically, logically, it's possible. In fact, Paul makes the point in Romans chapter 6 with the questions that he asks. He has spent five chapters proving that human beings are lost and hopeless and the law can't help them. And he spent part of those chapters proving that God has completely satisfied in Jesus Christ 
all that was missing and made possible salvation by faith. And then he asked the question, What then shall we sin that grace may abound? The very fact that he asked the question leads us to understand his conclusion. You have been saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Nothing is added to that. So should we sin that grace can abound? And Paul's answer to that question is, God forbid, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Because here is the reality that this faulty gospel fails to take into account. The reality is this. If you have been truly born again, your life has been changed. And I want us to be very clear about something this morning. Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's not a moral, ethical way of life that you can say, Oh, I like that. That's better than Buddhism. That's better than Hinduism. That's better than Islam. I like Christianity. I think I'll be a Christian. I like the Bible. I think it has good moral teachings. Jesus was a great man. I think I'll adopt His views. That is not Christianity. It is not a philosophy. It is not an ethical way of living. It is a relationship. It is coming to a living God as a broken and undone lost sinner and entering into a relationship that does not merely change your mind, but transforms your life. When you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is a transformation that occurs in the heart and soul of your being that makes you different. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. If there is no change, there is no salvation. The Bible plainly teaches that when a person has been truly born again, there is evidence. There is transformation. Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can this be possible? I don't understand this. How do you, how do you be born of the Spirit? And Jesus said, I, I, you know, I can't even explain to you, Nicodemus, all the details and, and intricacies of how the Spirit works. But this I can tell you. Just like the wind blows and you see the trees sway and the grasses move, so it is with the Spirit of God. When He comes upon you, there will be a result. There will be a response. You will bend to the blowing of His presence. You will move in the wind of His presence. When the Spirit of God comes upon your life, there will be evidence of His presence. One of the things that people who challenge the the gospel of salvation and, and justification by faith perhaps have right is that maybe we preach a faulty gospel. I was in a, in a Bible study group when I was in high school back in Florida. And in that group, they taught what I have come to understand as easy believism. What they taught was, all you have to do to be saved is pray the printer, sinner's prayer and, and agree that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. They even taught that repentance, turning from sin, was a work and was not necessary for salvation. All you had to do was believe. That's all you had to do. Just, just agree that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and pray a prayer, something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. How many of you this morning know you're sinners? Can everybody agree with that? Okay. Actually, most people in the world, when you explain sin, can agree with that statement. So you just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. 
I, I know I need a Savior. I know you died on the cross to forgive my sins. So right now, I, I accept the payment that you made on the cross, and I ask you to be my Savior. Thank you for saving me and taking me to heaven. And, and then they would say, and now you have eternal life. There is nothing in the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that even hints that that could be true. Nothing. The Bible plainly teaches that when we come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we must turn. We must repent of our ways. We must be broken before a holy God. We must humbly come into His presence. We must ask Him to forgive us from the heart because we know we have sinned. And we must embrace Him as Lord and Savior. There is nothing in the Scripture that says I can take Jesus merely as my Savior and save Lordship for a type B or plan B kind of faith. Okay, there's those that are saved and then there's those that are into lordship and they're into discipleship. But you can just go to heaven if you just say the sinner's prayer. There's nothing in the scripture that suggests that's true. The Bible speaks of new birth as coming to a place in your life under the conviction of the Holy Spirit where you know that you have sinned against a holy God. You know that you deserve hell. You are broken about your condition. You come before God in a state of brokenness, asking Him to forgive your sin, turning away from it, repenting of your self-willed style of living, inviting Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Master and to control and rule your life from that moment forward. That is what the Scripture talks about as a conversion experience. And the Bible says, if that has happened to you, then a new birth has occurred and that new birth has evidence that can be seen. There's a transformation You're a different person. Things have changed in your life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so when James writes his letter, he's writing to a group of people. And this is what they're saying. I've believed in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm saved. Never mind that I give preferential treatment to the rich when they come to church. Never mind that I could care less what brothers or sisters in Christ are starving and hungry. I'm not giving them any of my money or my food. Out of their mouth comes poison, backbiting, gossiping, and hateful statements. They're living for themselves. They're they're all puffed up in pride and arrogance. They're they're coveting and wanting what each other has. They're living like worldly people. Read the book of James. He very clearly describes a people who are self-willed and bent on their own interests and attitudes. And to that group of people, he says, wait a minute. You say you believe in God? (laughs) Big deal. The demons believe in God. And they're not saved. They tremble. Do you remember the story of the Gadarene where Jesus goes to this particular place and this guy that's been bound up in the in the tombs and caves comes out to meet him and and he's crazy and he's naked and he's, he's, he's just acting wild and Jesus begins to deal with him because he sees that this man is under demonic control. And he begins to deal with him. And do you remember what the demon said to him? We know who you are, Son of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? They know who he is. They believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They know He died on the cross for our sins. The demons know the atonement. They know the blood. They hate the blood. They don't disbelieve it. Oh, I don't believe the blood does anything. They know they're defeated by that blood. It doesn't save them. It doesn't change them. It doesn't do them any good. 
intellectual commitment to the truth of the gospel does zero for your life. It does nothing. It doesn't change you one whit. It will never change you. Intellectually agreeing with the facts of the gospel will not save you eternally. Any more than it will save the demons that know the intellectual facts of the gospel. And we need to be very clear when we are talking to people about coming to Jesus Christ, that we explain to them, it is not only what you believe. Yes, you must believe the truth, but you must also embrace it from the heart with conviction and repentance and turning and following Jesus Christ and committing your life to Him. It is not a religion. It is a relationship. You're entering into a relationship. And James says, if you do that, there will be evidence that will testify to that truth. Your life will change. You're going to be different. You're going to act differently. You're going to live differently. There are going to be new appetites. There are going to be new interests. And God is going to begin to work on your life. How do you know that you've been born again? James says we know that by the works that you do. This is, what he, this is how he puts it. He says, show me your faith without works. Show me your faith without works. Tom, can you show me your faith without works this morning? Where do you keep your faith? Is it in your wallet? In your pocket? Maybe by your pen? Where do you keep your faith? Can you, can you take your faith out and show it to me? Uh, you, you can't do that. Can't Show me faith. You can't show me faith. Carissa, you keep your faith in your purse? <laughs> Can you take it out and wave it at me? <laughs> you can't show me faith. Faith is a, an intra- intangible. And it's, it's, what was the word? Stop the tape. Let me think of the word. You start it again. <laughs> faith is not material. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't smell it. How do you know it's there? By what it does. By how it makes you behave. By the transformation of the power of God in your life. Listen, Jesus was addressing this same point. You remember when the guys brought their friend to Jesus? They got up on the roof, cut the hole in the roof, and let the guy down on the mat. And he's down in front of Jesus. And here's this guy paralyzed on the mat. And he's dropped him down in the, in the middle of a bunch of Jewish teachers, among other people. Okay? And Jesus looks at this guy. Now, now he knew. He knew what they were up to. I mean, they didn't bring this guy here for confession. Okay? They brought him there to Jesus to get healed. They couldn't get in the door, so they kind of pulled the dirt roof apart and dropped him through. And, well, they didn't drop him, but they kind of let him down. And now, now he's there on the floor, and Jesus looks at him and says... Your sins are forgiven. Ron, your sins are forgiven this morning. In the name, I forgive your sins. Prove prove to me that Ron's sins are forgiven. You can't do that. And who am I anyway? And that's exactly what those Pharisees, they they said to Jesus, Who is this man saying your sins are forgiven? You can say anything you want to say. There's no proof. How do we know that's true? And Jesus says, I know what's in your evil and unbelieving hearts. So in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, stand up and walk. Oh, that we can see. Here's this paralytic laying on his mat. And now he's standing up and he's walking. That we can see. No question about it. You don't have to prove that. You don't have to show me your faith. Here's the guy walking around. Okay, that's pretty obvious. Jesus says, so that you can know that I have authority to forgive sins. How do people know that you've been born again? Because of what you say? No, because of how you live. Because of the transformation in your life. That's what James is getting at. When he says, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. 
I'll show you my faith because my life has been changed. I'll show you my faith because I'm a different person. Listen, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, life comes into you. The life of God. And you can't snuff it out. I'm going to say something very controversial here. Because everybody's into discipleship and now we got coaching and, and all the things that we're supposed to do to get people grown up in Christ. I'm going to really go out on a limb and say something controversial I think a lot of times in the church what we do through our discipleship and teaching and training programs is we take unsaved people who have had intellectual assent and we teach them how to act like Christians. And they're still dead as doornails on the inside. They're like those Pharisees that are whitewashed sepulchers. Now they come to church. Now they read their Bible. Now they have their prayer time. Now they go through all the motions. And there has been no transformation of their life. But we keep telling them week after week, you must be a Christian. You read your Bible. You come to church. You got baptized. You joined the church. You've been through a discipleship program. You've memorized some scripture verses. That must obviously make you a Christian. That doesn't make you anything. If you have the life of Christ in you, you don't have to go to a discipleship program, a Sunday school program, a personal training program, or get a personal coach to begin to grow in Jesus Christ. That's going to happen. Because there's life inside of you, and you can't even snuff it out if it's the life of God. Do you see grass growing through the cracks in the asphalt out there? Have you ever seen a plant push itself up right through the concrete? Break the concrete to push itself up. How does that happen? Have you seen concrete broken up by a tree that's growing beside it? How does that happen? How does something like a fragile plant push asphalt out of the way? How does a tree break up concrete? Because it has life and you can't hold it back because it's going to grow no matter what gets in its way. It is alive. And friends, if you're alive in Jesus Christ, if He's changed your heart, if if He's now living inside of you, you are going to come alive in Him and begin to grow. You can't do otherwise. I'm not saying that people don't get bad teaching. In fact, we probably cause more harm than good sometimes in our programs uh, around the world. I'm talking about Christianity in general. I'm not saying people don't need good teaching. I'm not saying they don't get bad teaching. I'm not saying they don't get off track. And we talked about one of our missionaries, a revival in Ivory Coast that was a mile wide and an inch deep. But I think a lot of the fault is because we present the gospel in a faulty manner. When people are truly born again and the life of Jesus Christ has come into them by the Holy Spirit and they have been regenerated and new life is inside of them, you will be different. You will have a hunger for God. If you have no hunger for God this morning, you need to check out your salvation experience. You will have a hunger to know what He says. You will have a hunger to talk to Him. If you never have a hunger to talk to God, if you never have a thirst to know what He is saying to you, if if God is not a part of your life in a relationship way, you need to examine what you're claiming. Because if you have come to life in Jesus Christ, there has been a transformation in you. And that is exactly what James is saying. James is not saying that we're literally saved by our works. James is saying that the proof of our salvation is in the transformation of a life where the Spirit of God is living. And you cannot go on treating the poor as if they don't exist. And you cannot go on giving preferential treatment and arrogance and pride to the wealthy. Oh, come down to the front of the church and here, have a seat on the front row. You are our distinguished guest. You can't go on bad-mouthing people. You can't go on gossiping and character assassinating. You can't go on living with indifference. If God is living in your life, He'll convict you. You don't need me to tell you that. The Holy Spirit of God will tell you that. Friends, when I came to Jesus Christ, when I I submitted my life to Him, man, He he started doing a work in me. He started putting His finger on things that He wanted to change. 
things that were inconsistent with the character of God. He started putting his finger on those things. And saying to me, yield this to me, give this to me, give this to me, I want to take over here. And I'm not saying that's not a process, that is a process. And to this day, 40 years after I have committed my life to Jesus Christ as a faithful follower of His, He's still putting His finger on things in my life. He's still touching me in ways that He wants to change. He's still exposing my character against the character of God as I read His Word. He's still bringing the contrast to my attention and asking, Give this to me. Give this to me. Let me take over. But He is alive in my life and I can look back over that time and I can see the change. I know that I'm different. I know that God has done something in my life. Do you know that He's done something in your life? Can you see the evidence? James was writing to correct those people that thought they could live in any way they wanted to. John was writing to correct people who had a different philosophy. They were just as messed up in their head. They were dualists. They thought that the body was part of the material world and it was kind of hopelessly bad and the spirit was part of the spiritual world and it was good. And here's what they came up with. My body is hopelessly evil. Doesn't matter what it does. It's not going to affect my spirit. My spirit is good. It's been saved. It doesn't matter what it does. It won't affect the body. So if my spirit wants to worship God, that's good. If my body wants to go to an orgy, that's fine too. You know, and John says, you people are nuts. Well, he didn't put it that way, but that's kind of what he was getting at. He says, you guys are crazy. He said, let me tell you something. There are three ways that you can know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5.13, and, and I, when I was taught to present the gospel many, many years ago, I was told when I had led the, the person in the sinner's prayer, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I, I repent of my sins. I take you as my Lord and Savior. I know you died on the cross for me. Thank you very much. Amen. Take me to heaven. That I was then to say to them, after they had prayed that sinner's prayer, I was able to say to them, now listen, on the basis of 1 John 5.13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I can say to you on the basis of 1 John 5.13, you can know today that you have eternal life. Welcome to the family of God. That's just a little scary. You know why that's scary? Because it's not me who tells a person if they're a Christian. It's the Holy Spirit who bears witness with their spirit that they're a child of God. And we failed to read the whole verse. These things have I written unto you who believe that you may know. What things has he written? What things? John gives us three tests. He says if the Spirit of God is alive in you, there's three ways you can test it. Number one, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. That's pretty simple. I have fellowship with God. Well, how do you live? Well, I live in the world. I kind of like the world. You know, I, I live for the world. I, I mean, I, I, I want all the toys. He who dies with the most wins. You know, I'm after all the glory. I want, I want all the accomplishments. Um, I want to keep all my money, everything I make, I want to keep for myself. I don't care about anybody else. I, I'm living for the world, man. I want to get the prize. Okay, you're in darkness. You're lying. You don't have fellowship with God. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him. If anyone says, I have fellowship with Him and walks in darkness, he's a liar. So just check yourself out. John spends the next chapter talking about worldliness. And he says, don't you know that the world is passing away in all of its lusts, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life? It's headed out, man. Don't you realize that? If you love the Lord, you're not a part of that system. Now, we've got to live here. We've got to eat. I know all those things. But where's your heart? If I say this, you're going to get legalistic on me. And it, so I, I'm t tempted not to, but I'll say it anyway, and then I'll let you go work it out. At least once a day, see, that's the legalistic part that, that I, don't, I don't want you to get hung up on. Do you long for heaven? Do you find yourself sometime during the day saying, 
Lord Jesus, please come straighten this place out and fix this mess. Lord Jesus, I'm really looking forward to seeing you. Lord Jesus, I really want to be where you are. Paul said, man, I have a hard time sometimes deciding. I like to hang out here because it's good for you guys. But I really, really want to see Jesus. I really want to depart and be with him. Paul was not suicidal. He just had his heart in heaven. Do you have your heart in heaven? If we, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we're liars. John says, check it out. Just, just check it out. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you do an inventory. Where's your heart? Then he says, no one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, we don't have the benefit of the Greek, but if not everyone does, but if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, he can help you with this. This is not rocket science. You know that you know that John is not saying no one who abides in him sins. Let me tell you how someone I knew, the same group back in Florida, Easy Believism, their leader taught this. Now, this is logic for you. He says, no one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. I'm abiding in Jesus, therefore I no longer sin. In fact, I don't commit any sins. So no matter what I do, it's not a sin. And he was doing some pretty rotten stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that no one who abides in Jesus can have a lifestyle characterized by habitual rebellion. Sin in its essence is rebellion against God. I want my own way. I'm going to do my own thing no matter what God says. He says if you're abiding in Christ, you can't be running the show. Living for yourself, sinning at will. It's inconsistent with the life of Christ. The oak tree moves the concrete, not vice versa. If there's new life growing up inside of you, it's going to be breaking up this old stuff, moving it out of the way. You can't say, I'm Biden Christ, and then habitually, willfully rebel against God every day of your life. And if you try to do that as a Christian, by the way, next Sunday, I'm going to wrap up this series of justification with sermon number three, and I'm going to deal with guilt, repentance, and confession as a Christian. Because we've got to deal with guilt, okay? You can't come confess to me and let me give you some Hail Marys and Our Fathers and, and, be, and be done. So I've, I've got to tell you how to deal with guilt the right way. So I'm going to deal with that next Sunday. But if you're sinning against God and you're born again, He is going to be dealing with you. And man, there's going to be a war going on inside. If you're sinning and you've got no war... You better check out your conversion. It may not have happened. Because if you know God and you're walking with Him and abiding in Christ, you can't keep on rebelling with impunity. God is going to deal with you. You're His child. He loves you. He's not going to let that go on. And third, John says, check out your love for the brothers. Somebody comes to your house, has need, and you say, Oh, I'm so sorry for you. I'm sad that you've fallen on hard times. Excuse me. Uh, I've got some things I want to buy, though, and, you know, I can't give you any food because uh, we just we got steaks, and we're having some friends over, and we're, we're going to have a big dinner, and I can't spare anything. So I, I'll pray for you. Depart, be warmed and filled, go in peace. John says, Where's the love of God in your heart, man? Listen, one of the surest fire evidence that you've been born again is that you have love for the brothers. You have love for the sisters. You have love for other people. God is love. His nature is love. If you're not a loving person, maybe you don't know Him. John says, no one who, uh, who does not love his brother who, whom he sees cannot love God because God is love. That's His nature. So John says there's three tests. Check it out. Check it out. Do you have, do you have fellowship with God? Are you walking in darkness? Got a problem. You're abiding in Christ, living in habitual sin. Got a problem. Don't care anything about your brother. Got a problem. Check it out. Examine your life. These things have I written to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, I want to tell you this morning very clearly. 
We are justified and made holy in the presence of God by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Period. Nothing added, plus nothing, that's it. But if that has truly happened to you, the Spirit of God has come and taken up residence in your life. He has regenerated you. You are born again. God's presence is living in your body. And you will be different. And you will begin to take on His character. And you will begin to look like Him. And if you don't resemble Him in any way, you need to reevaluate your experience. James says, show me your faith without any transformation. (laughs) He says, I'll show you my faith because my life has been changed. Has your life been changed? I wish I knew who said it. I'd give him credit. said many years ago, I heard it a long time ago, but it's a good thing to ask. If you were ever put on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? If you're ever put on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Could they find enough proof to prove that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? When the disciples stood before the Pharisees and Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, you know what they said? We perceive that these men have been with Jesus. How did they know that? There was something different. Do people see that difference in you? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, But test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Do you not know that the Spirit of God is in you? Unless, of course, you've never been changed. You're still reprobate. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Father, I ask in Jesus' name this morning that you open our hearts to receive the truth of the message. Thank you for a glorious salvation. It cost me nothing to have my sins removed, cleansed, to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All I need to do is believe that that's true, that you've done that for me, and take it by faith. But, oh God, when my eyes have been opened to see that, then my heart is convicted of my true sin. And I yearn to have you in control of my life. And I want to be alive in Jesus. And I pray this morning, Father, if there's any person here who has thought for years that they were saved and had eternal life, But there's no evidence. There's been no change. They can't find any proof that the Holy Spirit of God is alive in them. Oh God, would you bring them this morning under conviction of the truth? Because you love them. Don't let any one of us in this room be among those who come all the way to the end And hear those horrible words, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. Lord, may we be sure this day that there is within us the seed of eternal life springing up everlasting, Jesus within, Him and us and us in Him. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.